This is The Engine Room of Democracy, a podcast series that explores how the rules and values of constitutional democracy work every day in our government and in our lives. Here we will explore major questions facing America. How do we keep government institutions accountable to citizens? How do democracies control military force? What is lawful warfare? How do we enforce it? How do the courts enforce their judgments? How do we honor the right of privacy while our security forces use electronic tools to track down bad guys? I'm your host, John Hamry, here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Each week, I sit down with remarkable individuals who had senior government positions to discuss these questions. We explore together what it means to be a government of laws. Hello, everybody. This is John Hamry. Welcome to this session of the Engine Room of Democracy. Today, we're very privileged to be able to talk with Rear Admiral John Kirby. Admiral Kirby was the chinfo in the Navy. That's uh, the chief of information operations for the Navy. Uh, he then became the deputy spokesperson for an assistant secretary of defense, and then later became the chief spokesperson for the secretary of state and was responsible assistant secretary for public affairs. He served in the Navy for 29 years. No one was more engaged in communicating with the broad public about the role of the Navy and the role of the government than John Kirby. He now works for CNN, and we're privileged to have him today. The purpose of our session today is to talk about how organizations are accountable to citizens and how they communicate that, and how does it contribute to their legitimacy. So we'll explore this question about how governments balance democratic transparency and the imperatives of government confidentiality in the context of credibility to the American public. And this is going to be a fascinating session. Admiral Kirby, you held key jobs, both at DOD and in the State Department. Would you take a minute just to describe for our public uh, listeners here, what does a public spokesman do? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think my argument is that public spokespeople are even more important now uh, in this very dynamic, uh, socially media-driven information environment than perhaps we even were before. But essentially, in my mind, the job comes down to three tasks. First, you have to be able to articulate, defend, and explain the policies and the decisions of our elected leaders or our appointed leaders in, in government, and do that in clear and concise terms. Number two, you've got to be able to provide access to the traditional working media, both to those leaders, and to facilitate interviews and, and access to them and to discussions with them, but also access to the relevant content that reinforces the arguments you're making about policies, whether it's imagery, data, information, or again, interviews. You're a facilitator. You're sort of the grease in the gears between the government and the press and thereby the, the people. And then I think the third role, which I frankly think is just as important, if not more important than others, is to demonstrate daily through your actions your willingness to hold up to the light of scrutiny, public scrutiny, all those decisions and all those policies and programs that the government is putting in place. And so that means 
being able to catch the spears. It means putting yourself out there and allowing those tough questions to come and holding yourself, your own credibility up for scrutiny, but also those decisions and those leaders. So I think it's really those threefold jobs. And it doesn't matter in, to some degree what communications technology has brought upon us. Those three essential roles of a spokesman are still really important. And I would say even more important now. Great. That's a wonderful foundation for us, John. You know, governments are involved all the time in sensitive internal deliberations and sometimes deliberations with other countries, other parties. American democracy depends on public debate and the credibility of being able to explain things in public. And yet there still is a need for confidentiality. How does this work in the real world? Well, so one of the things that was interesting for me when I went from the Pentagon to the State Department, as a military public affairs officer, you're trained from a very young age to argue, 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 you know, you want the American people to know what you're doing with their resources because you want more resources next year. It's very, very aggressively transparent. And when I went to the State Department, I would sit in these morning meetings with Secretary Kerry and you would hear about all these amazing things that our diplomats are doing out in the field to promote civil rights, uh, human rights to promote religious freedom, to get leaders in other countries to make more informed, more contextually based decisions. And I'd want to go to the podium that day and, and talk about that. And the ambassador in such and such a country would call me immediately and say, no, you can't do that. Because if you go out there and say it, then we own it. And we don't let the local leader own it the way we want them to own it. We want them to be responsible for these kinds of movements and progress. So it was frustrating at first, but I really grew to respect the care with which our diplomats in particular try to balance this very delicate uh, notion between transparency and confidentiality. It is very apparent when you are sitting in sensitive negotiations, such as I did with uh, Secretary Kerry, uh, with the Russians over Syria, uh, with the Iran deal, Paris Climate Accord, that the mantra in the State Department is, you know, nothing is final until everything is final. Nothing's agreed upon until everything's agreed upon. And so there's a space in negotiations for holding something back a little bit. In other words, maybe you have a piece of intel, maybe you know where your negotiating counterpart is going on something. You want to reveal your knowledge of that because you don't want to tip your hand and maybe hurt the outcome at the end of it. On the other hand, maybe you've got some information that you're withholding just long enough to make sure that if you need it, you can use it and get the outcome that you want. A great example of this was the Iran deal. They were at the 11th hour. It looked like it was all going to fall apart there in, in Vienna. In fact, the, the Iranians were ready to walk. And Secretary Kerry pulled out a little bit of information that he had been holding back, which was that the Treasury Department was willing to delist a half a dozen Iranian officials from the sanctions list. Now, we had not used that card and wisely had kept it in our pocket. He pulled it out at the last minute, and it was enough to save the deal and to get us over the hump. So there's this delicate negotiation you have to apply, you know, and information, it can be a tool in that, can be a weapon if it's played smartly. You know, it's fascinating. Now, you know, in the court of law, there's this very interesting oath you're asked to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now, that's in a court of law. How does that work in the world of diplomacy and in the world of public diplomacy? Is it really the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I think for the world of diplomats, all of that applies except that middle section, the whole truth. They obviously, as public servants, they have to be truthful and honest. And what gives our foreign policy authority, what gives it credibility on the world stage and here at home, is the knowledge, I think, and the comfort in the knowledge that our diplomats are accountable to us as citizens and voters and that they have to be honest. 
they, they can't lie on behalf of the country. But as we just talked about with the Iran deal, there are certain circumstances where a diplomat can't present the whole truth all the time in every moment uh, because it could actually subvert the national interest and maybe lead to a worse outcome than what he or she is driving at. So there's, again, a, a delicate balance that they have to pursue. Uh, they have to be honest at all times, but they don't have to be totally honest in everything they know. The same goes for somebody like me as a spokesman. When I stood at the podium at the Pentagon or I stood at the podium at the State Department, I had more information and more knowledge about stuff than I was able to disclose, either A, because it was classified and I didn't want to reveal classified information, or B, because my saying so could actually undermine what our diplomats were out there trying to do, as I mentioned before, that you know, some of these great moves in, you know, that they were making and advancing human rights and religious freedoms around the world. And we didn't want to take credit for that. So there's always this internal sort of struggle you go through all the time. But it's very important that you are as honest as you can be, as transparent as you can be. And I think, speaking at least for most of the press corps that cover these institutions, they understand that. They know that the cabinet officers and their spokespeople can't reveal everything but they do expect you to reveal as much as you can to provide the context needed for more accurate reporting. And that's a word that we don't talk about enough, sir, that I wish we did when we talked about communications context. It's not just about what we're doing or what we're not doing. It's not just about what you're willing to say versus what you're not willing to say. It's about how do you put this issue in a contextual framework to help people understand why something is happening. The most common question get at both podiums was not what, where, when, how much money. It was why. Why are you doing this in this part of the world and you're not doing it here? Why are you spending that much money on this and not that much money on this? Why are you deploying one unit from here in Afghanistan to another? It's the why. And a good spokesman who is at the hip of a good principal, cabinet officer, can provide that context. And I think that's the most useful way of talking about truth is through truth in context. And that probably is also, give us an indication when you said at the hip of the secretary, you have to be in those conversations enough to know the dynamic in order to do your job of providing that context and yet protecting the secretary. Yes, sir. Access for a spokesman is, is critical. And when I say that, sometimes people think I'm talking about FaceTime and, you know, you want to be next to the boss all the time. And that's not it. A good spokesman who is in the room, not only when decisions are being made, but before they are being made, is going to be able to do two things. One, help inform that decision-making process and make it better because a spokesman is going to have a sense of the information environment and how that decision is going to land in that information environment and should be affecting policy, not just communication strategy, but policy. Number two, a spokesman who's been on the ground floor with you all the way through your decision-making process is going to be much more nimble in this information environment in helping you respond, helping you counter false narratives, helping you articulate in real time, you know, the speed of Twitter, what you were really thinking and why. I had the great honor of being Admiral Mullen's spokesman for almost 11 years, from the time he put on his third star until he retired as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. We had then a very close relationship. And honestly, I can count on one hand the number of times in that decade or so that I worked for him that when a reporter would come and ask me, what does Admiral Mullen think about XYZ, where I actually had to go to the Admiral and ask him. And normally I had the answer because he insisted on having me in the room, on the trips with him, in the deliberations and affecting his decision making. It made me a much more capable communicator, particularly in the latter four or five years 
with social media coming on and the information environment being so accelerated. Yeah, very, very interesting. John, you know, I think Americans have, you know, kind of a very superficial understanding of diplomacy. You know, they think of it probably in terms of the glamour side of it, but not really the deep dimension of it. And the question I ask you is, how does public affairs fit into the art of diplomacy? Is it to signal sentiments? Is it to get support domestically? How, how does public affairs figure in diplomacy? So we already talked about one aspect, which is if a cabinet officer really appreciates public communications and public affairs as a function of what they do, the public affairs officer or the spokesperson can actually shape the policy decisions as they're being worked through. It's not just about how am I going to communicate it, but is this the right policy itself? And of course, if the policy is shaped wisely, the communications aspect will largely take care of itself. So the public affairs affects it on the front end. It certainly affects it on the back end because once a policy has been decided on, it absolutely has to be defended and articulated. So you're going to need a full-throated effort to get out there and explain it and defend it and being willing to hold it up to the light of scrutiny. The Iran deal is a great example of this. Again, regardless of what one thinks about the wisdom of the Iran deal, there was a very concerted effort after it had been inked to get Secretary Kerry out there and other cabinet officials, me included, to get out there to explain it and defend it and hold it up to that scrutiny and the very tough questions that came from members of Congress particularly. Uh, and so there was obviously testimony too. So good public affairs strategy on the back end of a policy decision helps to cement the wisdom of that policy decision in the minds of elected leaders like on the Hill, but also with the American people. There's a third dimension here though that's worth mentioning, sir, and that's what Joseph Nye once very famously referred to as soft power. I mean, there's a whole undersecretary at the, at the State Department in charge of public diplomacy. There is something to be said, not just about the policies that we pursue, but the values that undergird those policies and how we represent those values to publics all around the world. And so there's a very concerted effort at the State Department in particular to empower and encourage public diplomacy. This is whether it's sports exchanges or cultural exchanges, uh, student exchanges, or just the uh, introduction of training and assistance and, and aid that we can give to, uh, for instance, uh, foreign journalists around the world, not to imbue them with our values, but to have our values represented to them with the expectation that they will at least, if not espouse them, certainly respect them. And it advances, helps in advance our national interests around the world. So that's the third component, I think, of public affairs that can be so valuable is this, it's not easy to measure the soft power, but it's so incredibly important because it's driven by our values, not just our policies. Can I ask you, to what degree does the imperative of public disclosure, public debate, impede diplomacy? To what degree does it cause reticence on the part of the president or our diplomats because of the fear of it being disclosed? That's a very fair concern. And I think it's something that every administration battles with because we're a democracy, because Congress, they are our bankers and the executive branch's overseers. There has to be some give and take. There has to be some trust and confidence in disclosing to members of Congress and sometimes to the public as you are working through a negotiation or a process. Again, the Iran deal is a good example. Even as we were negotiating with the Iranians, you know, Secretary Kerry couldn't ignore the public and he certainly couldn't ignore members of Congress and they had to be kept informed at certain levels. 
But there's obviously some things you need to be careful with. The information, you know, you have to marshal very carefully, lest too much gets out and torpedoes that deal or that negotiation. So again, it's a balance and we don't always get it right, but you do have to be mindful of protecting the ultimate goal, the national interest. So there's a, another great example of this was uh, the release of Bo Bergdahl, the army soldier who left his unit in 2009 and was accused of desertion, was captured by the Taliban and kept in captivity for five years. And the Obama administration had an opportunity to free him in 2014, the summer of 2014, which resulted also in the release of five Taliban captives from Guantanamo Bay. And there was a lot of controversy about the decision itself. I don't think that's worth revisiting now, but Congress was not kept totally informed about that. In fact, there was very little, if any, congressional notification before that deal went down because there was great concern about potential for leaks. And even the littlest leak could torpedo the whole deal and could uh, keep Sergeant Bergdahl in more captivity longer. I mean, he'd already been for five years. And so there was a very deliberate decision not to inform, not to disclose. And Secretary Hagel, when he was called up to the Hill after that release, acknowledged that Perhaps there was more we should have done, that maybe that was not the best way that we could have handled that. But he didn't apologize for the deal itself. He didn't apologize for the general secrecy that was used uh, to keep that deal from the public. He did acknowledge that perhaps a wider sense of congressional notification might have been in order. But again, it was this delicate balance. How do you preserve this deal, this very sensitive deal, as well as you know, how do you meet your transparency requirements? Again, we don't always get it right. But it's something that has to be thought of from the very beginning. And that, sir, is another reason why I think it's so important to have your communicators in the room as we're thinking these things through so that they can help inform better and more informed decisions about transparency. John, you just mentioned a word that always used to just infuriate me, and that was leaks. When I was in government, it used to be just maddening when something truly important was leaked to the public would be furious about it. How much did that affect your world as a chief spokesman, both at DOD and at state? And were you ever able to prevent a leak from being published? So leaks are, I mean, leaks have been a problem since George Washington was president and not all leaks are the same. They are frustrating and they can be very dangerous, but we have to remember that they're not all exactly the same. There are leaks of classified and sensitive information which can put people's lives at risk and our national security at risk, and that's a crime and there's no excuse for that. There are other leaks that uh, happen that are leaks of ego here in town where you have one agency leaking information that could be damaging to another agency to try to subvert their policy objectives. And sometimes the government itself leaks on purpose to throw up a trial balloon. Hey, I'm thinking about nominating John Kirby for this position and, and kind of see how that plays in the media and on the Hill. So some leaks are fairly innocuous in that regard, and they can be a valuable tool in terms of the policymaking process. But that, I know that's not what we're really talking about here. We're talking about the serious leaks, and it's a constant struggle. I generally think, A, that we need to be mindful that leakers are motivated by so many different factors. It's very easy for a given administration to just assume that this is like, in this case, the deep state, or they're just out to get me. It's a little bit more complicated than that. And some leaks are actually whistleblower leaks. If they don't feel like there's any other way to bring information forward, they do it in a whistleblowing capacity. The other, I think, wrong conclusion about leaks is that, you know, they, they can all be prosecuted, that you can catch them all. I'm not at all suggesting that we look the other way when classified information is leaked, but historically, witch hunts and leak investigations don't tend to turn up the perpetrator. They don't actually end up causing 
a diminution in leaks. In fact, in some cases, they make it worse. But I do think that when you're thinking about how to deal with leaks, it, you got to think about, to some degree, again, back to the policy process. You know, is the policy process sound? Has it been inclusive enough, mm-hmm. thoughtful enough, and we deliberated enough? I mean, I, I think leaks are often the result of a policy process gone awry. I'm not defending it, but it's often the policy process gone awry. So ask yourself, how am I making these decisions? How inclusive am I being? How is the interagency on board with this or not? And look, I mean, as a spokesman, I wasn't worried about leaking anything myself, but I was definitely worried every day when I went to the podium that I didn't say anything I shouldn't say. So I started my day at the Pentagon and I started my day at the State Department with an intelligence briefing. And I would spend an hour to an hour and a half with my briefer, peppering him or her with all kinds of questions about the sensitive nature of the information out there, because I didn't want to go up to the podium and not know where those lines were. I didn't want to inappropriately or inadvertently say something in the podium that could be classified and could put people at risk. And then to your last point about, you know, have we ever been able to stop one? What I would say is, I don't know if I've ever had success in stopping a leak, but I certainly have had the ability through the relationships that I was able to garner with reporters and editors and producers to, if not stop a story that was based on a leak that could be damaging, at least get it modified a little bit to get certain aspects of the story called from the ultimate media product because we were able to make a convincing case that that fact, you know, would give away sources and methods or put people's lives in danger. And the media, while their job is to get information and sometimes the government's job is to withhold information, they don't want to hurt people. They don't want to put our soldiers or our diplomats in harm's way. And again, if you've worked on these relationships and you've built trust and confidence with the press, you can get them to understand that. So I have had some success in at least getting stories shaped in a way that that didn't result in the kinds of disclosure of information that could actually hurt people. (laughs) I admire your well-reasoned and thoughtful commentary on that. It still made me mad, but you framed it exactly right. And, And look, if I could just, I would add one thing to that. It's not a panacea, but I touched on it just a little. It's tending these relationships with the press. It's not going to solve all your problems. doesn't mean you're going to stop every story you don't like. But if you as a spokesperson or if you as a principal, a cabinet officer, an elected leader, work on developing healthy relationships with the media who cover it, you'll have a much better opportunity of helping shape those narratives and those stories. You get mad at leaks, and I understand that. What frustrated me was seeing senior leaders who didn't want to invest in those relationships with the press, who saw nothing but risk and no reward in having a healthy relationship with a reporter, then complain bitterly when their aspect wasn't covered in the story or a piece of information that was released shouldn't have been released. It's too late at that point. And you've got to work on those relationships in advance. Yeah, that's the interesting strength and complexity of a democracy. John, let me just ask you about fake news. I mean, it's become quite a term of art here in the last couple of years. You know, when I was a young kid starting off in government, you know, fake news was intentional disinformation by other governments. And so we've always had that susceptibility to disinformation campaigns. But now this seems to have a whole different construction. What do you feel about this term fake news? I'm very bothered by the way it's become politicized. The way it has been now hypercharged in this extremely partisan environment that we're in really has a couple of very deleterious effects that I think are worth people thinking about. One is the impact on foreign leaders. And now we've seen other autocrats in other countries 
that are copying uh, the use of the fake news moniker to talk about their press, even if they're leaders of countries that don't have a free press, still using it as an excuse to harass and to intimidate and to shut down media outlets, largely media outlets that they find objectionable or the coverage objectionable. And so we've, we're seeing autocratic leaders now copy us on that. And I think that's a terrible example that we're setting with respect to the value of a free press, which, as we talked about earlier, is all about providing a level of scrutiny and accountability to what you're doing. And that's a healthy thing. The other thing that worries me, and I see this now because I am working for a media outlet at CNN, is the actual potential security effect it can have on reporters. I mean, reporters are now becoming much more harassed. I mean, there were actual real bomb threat at, at CNN in New York City. And our offices in Atlanta came under attack not too long ago with protest activity there in Atlanta. And some of our reporters, when they cover a President Trump rally, now we have to have security guards escort them out of the arena and, and to their vehicles. So there's a physical security aspect to this intimidation that is totally inappropriate in a country such as ours. I mean, reporters are hiring their own security guards sometimes. They're getting death threats. I mean, it just sends a horrible example when we stand up and try to stand up and talk about our First Amendment, freedom of the press in this country, and our democratic ways, when in fact, we aren't living those values when it comes to how we actually treat the reporters. So there's a political aspect to this that really bothers me. And the other thing, sir, is that that diminishes, in my view, it tends to distract us from the very real problem of disinformation. There's disinformation, misinformation, and propaganda. Propaganda, we all know, that's state-run messaging. Uh, and that's always been with us since we've had states. Misinformation is the inadvertent release of false information, that it's not intentional. But disinformation, man, that is with us and that is strong. That is the deliberate release of false or vague information to try to distract and dissuade audiences and to try to delegitimize institutions or policies. And that's a very real concern. It's amplified now through social media and through communications technology, this whole deep fake issue now. So that's a, a very serious concern. And we aren't paying as much attention to that as we should, because I think, you know, we've been now distracted by the political chance of fake news. I mean, there are real enemies of this country uh, that are very sophisticated in the information space using disinformation tactics to sow discord and to distract us from doing the business of the American people. And I think that we need to spend more time on that. Well, and I think that also comes back and reinforces the point you made earlier about having working credibility with the press so that you can help when an issue comes up and it's clearly disinformation. How do they know? How do they find a way to test that? And obviously that responsibility for having good working relationship with the press becomes crucial for national security at that stage. It does. And I think we need to remember that reporters are often the victims of disinformation as well. That They will get tips sent to them from anonymous sources that sometimes is meant to just send them off on a goose chase or throw a story off. It's a very serious concern. And the other thing that this gets to is media literacy in this country. You know, as Mark Twain said, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still tying on its shoes. Today, information goes so fast that we can't even find our shoes before that lie has traveled halfway around the world. And so you're never going to beat the lie to the punch. You're never going to beat the lie out there. But if you are smart about how you consume information and you have the skills and the tools to discern what you're getting and to think and read broadly, you can help diffuse the effect. 
that lie. You know, there are some great programs out there at middle school and high school level and, and certainly at college level in this country on media literacy. And I think we need to devote a lot more attention to that. And it's not just our kids. It's our seniors. More than two-thirds of people age 65 or older in the 2016 election acknowledged sharing articles that they knew or suspected were fake. And so there's a, you know, media literacy is for all ages here. We all have to learn how to operate effectively and safely in this environment. The other thing we can do is just practical sense, you know, look at the editorial practices of the outlets you're following. You know, do they have a strict editorial philosophy? Do they have a corrections section where they're willing to own up to the mistakes they made? You know, how long does it take for a story to actually get published in your favorite outlet? And are you being willing to read and to digest news and information from outlets who have a different view than you? Well, how big is the universe that you're encompassing? I mean, we have a lot of the power uh, in our own hands uh, as consumers. And then I would say as the government, government spokespeople particularly also have some power. You may not be able to beat the lie, but you can overwhelm it. You can overwhelm it through imagery, counter imagery to actually prove that the, the rumor is false or with data that you can prove that your, your case is right and through repetition. And again, whether you're a fan of President Trump or not, I mean, he is good at repeating the messages that he believes works for him. Repetition works. And so one way for government spokespeople to think about how you beat back disinformation is being out there with the truth as fast as you can and then repeating that truth over and over and over again in all the vehicles that you have available to you, not just through Twitter. You mentioned about, you know, governments will have propaganda operations. And I'd like to ask you about the role of official government news agencies. We've had Voice of America, you know, for years. I think probably some people think that Voice of America is designed to give political messages. I know from my experiences that Voice of America used to argue very strongly to be just a, an objective news source because that was crucial to their credibility and that was the foundation of our democracy. How do you think about official government news channels? And, and how does it relate to your work as a, a spokesman for a, a major department? Yeah, there's two sides to that coin, because I, I had to deal with Russia Today and CGTN, the Chinese equivalent of state-run media there, as well as other outlets that they employ. Um, and it was very frustrating. Uh, they would come to our briefings clearly with an agenda, clearly spouting the talking points of uh, their respective governments. And it really didn't matter what I said or what our answers to their questions were, that it was a predetermined way of battling against the American narrative. And in those cases, those state-run outlets, there's no editorial independence at all, none. And that renders them uncredible in the information space, or it certainly should, because they don't have any freedom, RT and Sputnik and those guys, to actually challenge uh, the Russian policy narrative. What makes an organization like uh, Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, special and unique is yes, it's state funded. And yes, they make it a point to try to explain uh, American policies. They are in the policy realm much more than perhaps other independently commercial outlets. But there is a measure of editorial independence that they have, that they are given a chance to challenge. I mean, some of the toughest questions, and I'm kidding you, that I would get uh, at the podium, certainly at the State Department, was from the State Department Voice of America correspondent, who's still there, and she does a great job. She challenged me very, very hard. And I always thought that that's what makes our system of subsidized media special, this editorial independence. The other thing, and this gets overlooked 
in all this debate about where Voice of America is going, and I'm very troubled by what this administration has done at Voice of America. But the other thing is that I think people need to understand about it is the value to our policymaking process by having and employing foreign journalists for Voice of America who speak the local languages, who know the culture, who understand how to communicate with the regional governments, who get what it's like to live in that part of the country or that part of the world, wherever it is. The value that they bring to our coverage of those events is invaluable. I mean, it's just incalculable. And they help make us smarter as we begin to think about how our policies are gonna land in this or that capital. So there's a reciprocal benefit uh, to the way we have traditionally handled state-run media in this country that I feel like we don't fully appreciate. Fascinating. You know, what's the nature of accountability for a spokesman? I mean, obviously, is it just a marketplace? If you're proven not to have told the truth, you damage your credibility. Is there a channel of accountability that's important for us to understand? Yes, there absolutely is. I mean, um, and just speaking for the spokesperson, just individually, it could take a, a lifetime, a career to build a reputation for honesty and credibility as a spokesperson and a nanosecond to destroy it if reporters believe that you are lying to them. Now, look, I have made mistakes. I have certainly said things from the podium that were inaccurate, either based on the fact that I had bad information or I simply didn't properly couch it at the podium. But that's different. You go after the podium and you, after the briefing is over and you explain to reporters, hey, I made a mistake, here's the answer. That's different. They understand mistakes will be made. But what they won't forgive and what the American people should not forgive is a spokesperson that deliberately lies and tries to hide the truth. It's not just about telling the whole truth. It's actually lying about what it is. And that's unforgivable. And it should result in a spokesman losing his or her credibility, I mean, forever. It's an inexcusable offense. Beyond just, you know, you losing your credibility as a spokesperson, think about the damage that does to the institution. When you're up there, you're not speaking for you. You're not speaking for John Kirby. You're speaking for the U.S. State Department or for the Pentagon or for the Navy. And if you can't be honest, if you can't be credible, then those institutions by default suffer in credibility. And that's the weight that I took on my shoulders every day and I worried about all the time was not my personal reputation, but what am I doing to advance and to defend and to uphold the values of the institution that I'm representing? You are a representative and you have to take that very, very seriously. And so that's the larger worry when you don't feel like you need to be accountable to the American people or or to the media. I don't know that from an institutional perspective that accountability obviously is important in a democracy, I don't know that we are using as a government, we're using all the tools of accountability at our disposal. And I'm speaking specifically about congressional oversight. This isn't a political argument, but I think any casual observer would look at the last several years uh, and see that Congress hasn't been meeting its oversight requirements as fully as they should be, as aggressively as they should be. There are structures in place in our checks and balances to hold the executive branch accountable. And I believe and I worry that they're slipping a little bit. And I also worry that we have become blasé about truth in this country, that there are so many lies, that there are so many falsehoods propagated on an almost daily basis today, that we're almost becoming immune to it, that it's not like it doesn't matter, it's just that we're not bothered by it as much as we should be. Uh, And that worries me a lot. And I would like to see that turned around. John, one last question, and that is, 
How has social media changed the public affairs business? In one sense, sir, it's changed everything. In 2007, the landmark year, that's Twitter and Facebook were born. And I, as a spokesman, certainly did not appreciate social media platforms until a couple of years later. But it has changed in many ways everything. Everything is faster. Everything is more nimble. You now, as a spokesman, have the ability through social media to communicate more directly with audiences than you did before. Not that you want to go around the press, but it does give you a way to inject into the argument directly. It also gives you a quick way to counter a false narrative using Twitter. I've certainly done that myself. It also forces the business of news gathering and news response to be much more reactive because now anybody with a smartphone can bear witness to a newsmaking event. In fact, anybody with a smartphone can create a newsmaking event, as we're seeing with the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, citizens with these smartphones not only documenting things that need to be examined publicly, but creating events and protests around those issues. So it's in some ways absolutely changed everything. A producer at Al Jazeera once told me when I was the Navy chief of information, he said, Kirby, you need to remember that every single sailor in the United States Navy can be a reporter now. And you have to appreciate the power that is resident in that little device that they have in their back pocket. But in another way, sir, and we've kind of talked about this throughout this discussion, it hasn't changed everything. And that's honesty, credibility, sound policy decision-making, transparency, and quite frankly, humility, when you're either at a podium or you're a policymaker, all still matter. In fact, I would argue that because of social media, because there's so much out there and so much out there isn't true or isn't accurate, it augurs for more thoughtfulness and introspection and honesty by our principals and our spokespeople today. It not only reinforces those core values that any spokesperson should have, I think it actually strengthens those core values. It makes them more important now than ever before. So in one way, it's changed everything, certainly about the pace of your job on any given day. But on, in another very, very important way, I don't think it's changed at all what it means to be a credible public servant. I won't do justice to the richness of this discussion, but you know the things that jump out for me as I reflect on this conversation, John, is that democracies depend on transparency, truthfulness, accountability to citizens. In the complex world of public affairs, those are absolutely reinforcing values. And you've given us a great insight into your world. Any concluding thoughts before we wrap up? Just one. And this is a parochial concern. You know, we've seen certainly in the last few years, but even before President Trump took office, a bit of a chilling effect on government media relations, uh, certainly in this digital age. What I worry about is that if in some future date we try to reclaim those relationships, if we decide that we are going to start nurturing those healthy relationships, it's going to be a while before things can warm up effectively. I worry that principals, these senior military officers, as well as cabinet officials, view the task of public communications as, again, all risk and no reward, uh, and they're eschewing uh, relationships with the traditional media. They're not communicating through social media because it could get them in trouble. And those relationships, if they're not tended, they will wither and die. And getting them back is going to be hard. The second component about this, and this gets right back to your very first question, what does a spokesperson do? Well, one of your jobs is to be at the hip of that 
cabinet officer or that principal. And right now, what I worry about is, and I talk to a lot of young spokespeople, they aren't in the room, they aren't at the hip, they aren't helping shape the decisions of their bosses because their bosses see public communications as all risk and no reward. And, and so now you have muscle movements that public affairs officers should instinctively be able to call upon in a crisis and those muscles are atrophying. And I worry that we could be a generation or more digging out of this hole that we're in because of all the distrust between the press and the public, press and government, and spokespeople and their principles. And uh, that concerns me. I hope we're able to turn it around. I, I hope we're able to get back to a more healthy level of nurturing these very, very critical relationships in a democracy such as ours. John, this has been a fascinating conversation. I've learned so much listening to you. I'm grateful that you gave us this time. Thank you, sir. John Kirby, a sailor, a, a great leader, and a patriot. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. My pleasure to be with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 